Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I am Emily Booter. I'm John Fusco. I'm Charles Hain. It's January 5th, and on this week's show, a big change ahead for American filmmakers, a big disturbance in the force, and the No Budge Film Awards. In Ask No Film School, tips on how to best back up your data, and as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, and new film releases. Welcome to the first Indie Film Weekly of 2016. No. We are on a roll already. Do we get 2016 again? Do we keep living 2016 until we do it right? Can anyone correct my tag? Starting off. Charles, that would be called a turn on return. Okay, I'm going to try that again. No, Horrible. I think we're going to keep that. Tomorrow. <laughs> we can, I think it's funny. I mean, welcome to the first Indie Film Weekly of 2017. Yeah, that's cool. So with the times. As always, we are coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, and we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Like how you might have missed that it was a new year, if you were me. Um, how was everybody's holiday break? Good. <laughs> I feel refreshed. Yeah? Anyone? Yeah. Emily, you went to Belize? I did go to Belize. It was awesome. I saw a nurse shark. Belize it or not? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh a, a nurse shark? Yeah, they don't have teeth. It's okay. Is that the they only thing? They look like thing? shark, though. Is that the only thing you did in Belize? <laughs> no. <laughs> do they have movies there? Uh, not that any that I saw, but yes, they do have movies there. Did you make a movie there? <laughs> I made a, an iPhone movie. Nice. Of the nurse shark. Cool. I made an iPhone movie, too, of uh, my friend on a swing. At a beach. Oh, that was really nice. I saw it on your Instagram. Thanks. Definitely less exotic than mine. Yeah. Anyway, I was in Mexico. It was a very refreshing break. Yes. No movies. No movies. I was in Mexico City and watched no movies, but on the plane back, I watched Edge of Tomorrow. The movie's solid. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah. I'm shocked, actually. Tom, <laughs> Tom Cruise, huh? <laughs> Emily Blunt really carries that movie. Oh, she's awesome. I saw Paper Towns on the plane. It stinks. Yeah, okay. your airline hey, didn't have I, good selections. I wrote about Paper Towns one time, and some guy was like, Paper Towns is a great movie. I was like, Come on, it's not that good of a movie that you have to defend that movie. Like, It's not that good of a movie. The script is terrible. Okay. Sorry if you like Paper Towns. Moving into the first news of 2017. Well, I know January 1st is supposed to be a day of hope, but unfortunately, it was a sad day, or at least a at least um, an unfortunate day for American film future, and I will tell you why. So here on the podcast, I've talked a lot about tax incentives, and while the word tax might send some of you running for the hills, I know it does for me, it's the incentive part that really matters here, because tax incentives are a really, really good thing for filmmakers. And here's how they work. Some states, countries, or local governments have programs set up to reimburse production companies for taxes owed on money spent for the production, which could be anything from production costs to labor, which means you can lure in financiers with the promise of a giant tax break. And if that's not attractive, I don't know what is, to investors at least. Now, all that's about to change for American filmmakers, unfortunately. And this is the first taste of the new political regime because... On January 1st, we suffered the first casualty, and it was the death of an important tax incentive act. Now, let's back up a little bit. In 2004, Section 181 of the Internal Revenue Code, I hope you're not bored to tears yet, was enacted as a part of the American Jobs Creation Act. 
Its purpose was to give tax breaks to projects shooting in the U.S., which might otherwise have turned to production overseas in a phenomenon known in industry parlance as runaway productions. As I've mentioned previously on the show, there are plenty of very attractive tax incentives for American producers shooting abroad. In some countries, you can recoup up to half of your entire production budget through the programs. Most recently, many American producers have opted to shoot in Canada for its generous 35% tax rate, for example. So what's important about the recently repealed Section 181 is that it was a giant boon to investors, that is, when it was in effect. The law significantly mitigated the risk of investment by giving investors a 100% loss against taxable income in the year the money was spent on a film project. So the way this worked was, say a producer or investor put up a million dollars for a film last year. If that person is in the 30% tax bracket, they could save $300,000 in taxes. That's a lot. As Deadline notes, if you add state tax incentives to this equation, a really smart investor could see 50 to 70% return on investment, regardless of whether the project ever makes a penny in profit. So that's a huge risk alleviated. And yesterday, in an official statement, the DGA, or the Directors Guild of America, said, quote, the only federal tax incentive designed to specifically keep film and TV production in the U.S. is now dead. So unless this act is renewed by Congress, which is an unlikely story under the Trump administration, according to experts, the future of the American film industry and specifically investors, which impacts all of us because we all want to go to investors to get money for our films, has just taken a giant hit. So welcome to 2017. Well, that's interesting because you'd think that Trump would be like supportive of this tax incentive because he uh, is such a big Hollywood guy himself. And also, he, you know, most of his campaign was talking about how he's going to keep jobs in America. And uh, the American film industry is something that I think we can be most proud of as far as our exports go. So I don't know. It seems like... To me, I'm not an expert like these people, but Trump should be on this. Well, that's logical, isn't it? Yes. I don't know if we're talking about logic per se. Yeah, logic. I'll check Twitter and let you guys know. Okay. I have a quick question, though. Do you know if projects can still be grandfathered in? Because I remember in the past, it used to be this big thing where it's like, ah, oh, Section 181 is going away next year, so we better shoot something in December. Because according to the old rules, at least, if you had started shooting your project... It could still count under Section 181 even the year it expired. I bet that's still the case. So if that is the case, this is actually good news for any of you who have started shooting your project in any way, shape, or form. If you have done a day of production, save that footage, save your paperwork, and go to investors and say, hey, I'm still a Section 181 project. I repeat again, I'm not a certified tax accountant. But that's good advice. As many of you know, we're about to enter award season pretty heavily. We actually kind of have already. One awards program that uh, emerging filmmakers should definitely take a look at are the No Budge Film Awards because they feature a lot of our compatriots and they are uh, nice examples of what you can achieve on a short or a feature of your own using a micro budget. If you're not familiar with No Budge, you probably should get on that. It's a site that is a sort of a mix between a film festival and a streaming service where you can submit your work to be featured. They premiere either a short or a feature every Tuesday. The site was started and curated by actor-filmmaker Kuntucker Audley, whose most recent project was the critically acclaimed Christmas Again, which co-stars my friend Hannah Gross. 
This is the fourth year they've given out awards with categories like Best Comedy, Best Drama, Best Experimental Film, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Script, and of course, Best Film. So the best film winner this year should come as no surprise to anyone who's seen it. Jim Cummings' Thunder Road is really a perfect short film. It's one location, one shot, made on the cheap cheap, and featuring a brilliant performance by Cummings himself. Cheap cheap. Cheap who, cheap. <laughs> who also won the Best Male Performance Award, which is like kind of a sexually charged. Kind of, yeah, that's I had to go back and reread. <laughs> yeah, that gave me pause. Conductor, to say the least. If, if you're listening, you might want to reconsider the title of that award, but you know, good for Jim Cummings. <laughs> I know some ways you can cheat on that award, by the way. Cummings won the best male performance. Um good Cummings. The film also won <laughs> Yeah, there you go. The film also won uh, Best Short at Sundance last year. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. And also check out our article, which features every winner uh, that's on the site now. In one of 2016's last kicks in the teeth, we lost Princess Leia on December 27th. Actress and writer Carrie Fisher passed away at age 60, and the very next day marked the death of her mother, Debbie Reynolds, who was also an iconic film and TV actress with more than 80 credits to her name. A documentary about the close relationship between the two women premiered at Cannes in 2015 and is set to air on HBO starting this weekend. It's called Bright Lights, starring Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. Carrie Fisher had many accomplishments on and off screen, but I have to say I really felt this loss personally because of her most famous role as Princess Leia in the Star Wars movies. Return of the Jedi was the first movie I saw in theaters, and the images of a strong, witty, laser-gun-wielding woman have loomed large in my mind ever since. A private joint memorial service for the mother and daughter is scheduled for today. Goodbye, Carrie and Debbie, and may the force be with you. I actually saw Rogue One in theaters last night, and right before the screening, they had a bit of a tribute to her, and some people around me got teary-eyed for sure. Did you see it at, like, Alamo or something? Yeah, 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 Alamo. We have one more sad goodbye this week. You might recall our extensive coverage of the Toronto International Film Festival back in September and how much we enjoyed it. Well, one of the men behind the event, co-founder Bill Marshall, died on Sunday at age 77. He worked with the festival for an impressive 41 years, helping to build it into one of the most influential global cinema events. He also produced 13 features and hundreds of documentaries. We're sending our thoughts out to the whole TIFF staff who were so nice to us when we were in town. Moving on to gear news, here's Charles Hayne. So, of course, the big news every January, or at least the first week of January, is the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, in Vegas this week. With the advent of the internet for marketing, trade shows matter less than they used to, but CES is still a time for a lot of product launches. And as filmmaking gear and consumer electronic gear have more and more overlap, there are always some cool things to come out of CES that will show up soon on a film set near you. The biggest news is that, like 10 minutes ago as we record this, uh, Panasonic has officially released all of their GH5 specs, which is great, including a ship date of March, which isn't as early as the originally rumored January, but it's still pretty soon, a 1998 price point. And um, not like how much a camera would have cost in yeah, 1998. Yeah, I was going to say, Because that would have been awesome. <laughs> That's the Bill Clinton digital camera. No way, the shit was way more expensive back then. I would um, rather buy the Monica Lewinsky digital camera. It's got a stain on it. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Whoa. <laughs> so gross, I'm sorry. Okay. You're not allowed to cut that out. All of the same uh, specs that we rumored last year are confirmed. The biggest one, internal 422 10-bit 4K video. 
That is huge. That is something that on almost every camera you hear about that does 4K, you need an external box like an Atomos or Convergent Design, and getting 4210 bit internal is great. Uh, if you're willing to bump down to 4208-bit, you can go up to 60p 4K with no crop, and uh, it's pretty exciting. People love the GH4. It's a very popular camera. It's also a really popular camera with like journalists, documentary filmmakers, like that kind of thing. Uh, its small form factor is great. So if you are a GH fan and you don't mind that they keep coming out with a new one like every 11 months... Um, I think the GH5 is definitely one to take a look at. You want my advice, listeners? I say get the GH5 and then quit your job and travel the world. That's my advice. Are you trying to tell me something, John? <laughs> Maybe. Wow. That's what I want to do. Okay. And John gives his two weeks notice. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> now that this camera has come out, you know, I can get on with life. So, no film school is hiring a producer and uh, writer. If you're interested. You know, just a jack of all trades. All around handsome guy. Yep. You have to have a lot of great shirts. Oh, do it. Thank you. John was so sheepish when he said thank you just now. I, well, you know, I... Uh, I, I uh, Men are not good with fashion companies. No. We don't know how to give them. We don't know how to receive it's them. Always, but we're learning in it's 2017. It's always nice. Anyways. In further CES news, Lacie <laughs> uh, brings us Thunderbolt uh, 3 USB-C to their rugged and desktop drives. If you work in film, you have seen the Lacie D2 or rugged drives a bunch. The rugged is like the default delivery drive when you're sending hard drives around because they're very cheap and they come in a rubber case. And uh, they've upgraded both to USB-C Thunderbolt 3. So if you have a new MacBook Pro and you love it or you hate it and you don't want to use a dongle to connect to the hard drive, it is great. I would also say even if you don't have the new MacBook Pro, the next hard drive you buy should probably be USB-C Thunderbolt 3. Ooh. It is the future. Oh, man. And then buy a dongle to connect it to your old laptop. It seems like we've reversed uh, positions on USB-C. It seems like you're finally admitting that USB-C is the future. No, in my review, I specifically said I love USB-C, yeah. and I do not mind lots of dongles. My problem with the MacBook Pro is they're too close together. Yeah, that's true. Like, why have two ports if you can't put two things in the two ports because the holes are right next to each other? I, I hate when two dongles are too close together. I know. I feel that way about electrical <laughs> outlets sometimes, too. The dongles really aren't that bad. They're, like, very small. They're, like, ref I mean, you can get them for... On the cheap, cheap. <laughs> yeah, but dongles don't bother filmmakers because we always have a bag of dongles. Yeah. We always have like SDI barrel connectors or like, yeah, I said it, a bag of dongles. <laughs> cheap, cheap. Like it's, you know, everybody does in the film industry. I think the dongles are more annoying if you're not a pro. Yeah. But it doesn't really bother us. Here's the thing. In the future, I think it will all be USB-C. I really do. And I think it's a great little connector port that would be awesome. Although I wish it was like USB-C and then MagSafe for charging, but mm -hmm, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, so. Cool. And we'll keep our eyes out um, this week at CES for other news. There'll probably be some drone stuff, virtual reality stuff, 8K stuff. Oh, stuff and LG and Technicolor just announced. They announced a collaboration last year, and the first results of that are out. The new E, the new 7 series of OLEDs are out, and we covered the 6 series, so there'll be some news about that coming up soon. Sick. All right, now moving on to grant deadlines. This is a really cool one, um, especially if you're like... 13 years old. Nickelodeon's writing program submissions opened on January 2nd. If you've ever wanted to write for Nickelodeon, this writing program gives you a salaried position for a year, and you, of course, get hands-on experience writing specs and pitching stories. Alum from this program have gone on to create their own Nick shows and write for all sorts of TV series and films. 
In the program, you meet series creators, you work in writer's rooms, you receive hands-on experience writing spec scripts and pitching story ideas in both live action and animated television. To get in, you have to submit a spec script based on a number of different TV programs, Adventure Time is one of them, that you should check out online. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, you basically can say that you were a writer for Nickelodeon for at least a year if you get into this program. Another opportunity deadline is on January 9th, and it's the Film Independent Fast Track slash Sloan Fast Track Grant. The Film Independent Fast Track is a three-day film financing market where you'll have intensive meetings with top executives, financiers, agents, managers, distributors, granting organizations, and production companies. And it's held during the LA Film Festival, and one producer will get a $20,000 grant chosen for the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation Producers Grant. And the project selected must have at least um, one science, technology, or Mathematical. Mathematical related theme. And January 11th is the deadline for both the NEH media production and media development grants. We've talked about the NEH, I think, before on the show. It's the National Endowment for the Humanities, and it is the big daddy of government support for documentaries that address the humanities. Big daddy, big daddy. Big daddy. The application process is definitely not easy. You need an experienced team, a nonprofit organization or fiscal sponsor, two humanities advisors, and a lengthy application. Ken Burns is sort of famous for winning these grants, and his project descriptions are rumored to have been around 40 pages. But the payoff is definitely worth it. One to three year grants in the $100,000 to $650,000 range for the media production grants, and the development grants range from $40,000 to $75,000. If you were ever thinking about applying, I encourage you to do it this year because I'm not 100% confident that these uh, departments will exist in the future. We have a few festival deadlines this week that are close to my heart. The first one is Camden International Film Festival. The submissions open January 5th, today. Uh, This festival takes place in the fall, September 14th to 17th in Camden, Maine. during the festival, there's also the Points North Documentary Forum, where uh, documentary films are selected to pitch in front of industry experts. I was there last year. I have a few stories up from it. It is um, such a beautiful festival run by lovely, kind filmmakers and film lovers in beautiful Camden, Maine, and they just treat all of their guests like film royalty, so highly recommend applying. The Dakaviv International Documentary Film Festival deadline is also today, January 5th. This festival takes place in May in Tel Aviv. I have a funny story about this festival, which is um, it takes place in a kind of a fancy cinematheque, in a very modern cinematheque in Tel Aviv. And my very first documentary is called Jericho's Echo Punk Rock in the Holy Land, and it's a documentary about the, the street punks of Tel Aviv. And these are like serious, like 1977 style mohawks, tattoos, piercings, guys. And when my film about punks of Tel Aviv played at Duck Aviv in Tel Aviv, of course, they all wanted to come. And it was like a total culture clash. All these like highbrow, arty art cinema people were like overrun by a theater full of total gutter punks. And it was, uh, I think that. I wouldn't be surprised if folks that run that festival are still talking about that screening today because raucous would be an understatement. I was very proud. Anyway, great festival, nice people, very well programmed, obviously. (laughs) One more with the deadline, an early deadline on January 8th is the Kew Gardens Festival of Cinema. It's going to take place 
uh, August 14th to the 13th this year. It's the first ever festival to be held in Kew Gardens, and it's going to take place at their historic cinema, which is the only operating art house theater in all of Queens. It was built back in the 30s. And for those of you who don't know, this is the most diverse borough in the entire country. And part of the goal of this festival is to bring um, a wide range of independent cinema to a very, very diverse audience who doesn't always have um, access to it. So I think it would be a great one to apply to. And one of the perks of the festival is that if you get in, they offer filmmaker festival badges to your entire crew. And there's a couple international documentary festivals to keep on your horizon. The Visions du Riel in Nyon, Switzerland has a deadline on January 9th. And the Hot Docs Film Festival in Toronto, Canada also has a deadline on January 9th. This week in Ask No Film School, Josh Berman asks, I know the basic concept of backing up your data. What I really don't know is what's the best way to do this? So this is a great question, and we're going to break it down into a few stages. Um, First, when you're on set, there's this tool, Hedge for Mac, which automates the file download and duplication process that's totally great to make sure you have multiple identical copies of your footage. That way, you make one copy that goes to post, and then you make another copy that goes to some other location. So even if the post house is hit by a meteor, your dailies are still safe, and you can start editing again from scratch after you put out the meteor fire. Josh specifically asked about project files when you're working on your project in post, and there's a few things to think about here. So what a lot of people do is they back up to just one external hard disk, but that's still nerve-wracking since we've all had a hard disk that just one day doesn't boot up. So what I do is I set my project file and the autosave vault, which is the file where the program makes copies of your project all day long, every 10 minutes, um, to a place on my internal drive that is automatically connected to the cloud, like a Dropbox folder or a Google Drive folder, so that, and I set it up to back that folder up to something like a carbon copy external drive or a time machine drive. That way, I have a copy of the project file on the internal. But if the internal fails, I have a copy of it on the cloud. And if the internet doesn't work, I have a copy of it on the time machine or carbon copy backup drive. So I've got like three copies of the file without even really having to think about it. In film school, we called that redundancy. So if like things crash, you still have your project file. Now, when the project's done, is the last time you have to think about backup because things get more complicated. Like if you've ever stored anything on a hard drive, like a hard drive from five years ago is probably not going to boot up. And you could put it on like three hard drives, but then none of them might boot up. A lot of clients just want you to put it on YouTube or Vimeo, and that's fine, but that's going to be like a low-res compressed version, and for a feature, it's going to be super low-res, and then you're trusting like a distribution site to archive your project. So what we recommend is using LTO. LTO is linear tape optical. It's used by like law firms and accounting companies to back up their data. It is a tape. It's like an $80 tape and uh, you can back up terabytes of data to it. Now the player for the tape is thousands of dollars. So you don't need to buy one. Most post houses of any size will like own one and will like back up your movie for $300 to tape. And uh, you won't be able to play this tape, but you can keep it and sit it in your closet and we can reasonably be assured in 20 or 30 years because of all the law firms and accounting companies using this format, there will be readers available to pull your data off of it if you need, if all of your hard drives crash. But even still, 
make two or three of those LTOs and keep one where you live and like then send one to your cousins in another country so that if that meteor strikes your town, your movie still exists and gets to be seen by people living in the post-meteor universe. I like the apocalyptic metaphor that's going on here. Sign of 2017. And now onto some movies opening and streaming this week. On HBO Now, one of my favorite movies... For some reason, we're seeing a lot of our favorite horror movies pop up this week on streaming services. Uh, I don't really know why that is as it's January, but as of January 1st, you can see Evil Dead 2 on HBO Now. Back on Halloween, we all recommended a few of our favorite horror movies for you to watch, if you can remember, and mine was Evil Dead 2. The movie, which is directed by Sam Raimi, is more of a remake than a sequel. It has all the same Cabin in the Woods plot points as the first one, but basically, after the success of The Evil Dead, Raimi took all of his ideas that didn't make the final cut of the first film because of budgetary or studio restraints and put them into Evil Dead 2. What he ended up with is one of the most bizarre, terrifying, and hilarious horror films, or just really films of all time. Um, so it's definitely worth a watch, especially from an independent filmmaker's standpoint. What studio was Evil Dead 1 that yeah. was, like, interfering? I don't know. Um, I thought he raised the money with dentists and could do whatever he want with, like, the $4,000 he had. Well, I think that's probably, I mean, $4,000 right there. That's. I mean, I don't actually know how little it was, but it was <laughs> it very... It was very small. So, I mean, like, all of the, all of the effects in um, Evil Dead are, like so practical and so funny like the gore that he uses and the way like you know bodies melt and stuff but Evil Dead 2 really kicked things up um, a notch technologically speaking and also just like opened up a whole new sort of um, subsect I guess of the story which I won't really get into but it it incorporates some sci-fi elements and it's just it's really cool seeing a filmmaker go back and remake his own movie the way he would if he had the budget to make that film the first time yeah it's like the director's cut but it's like the director's whole movie yeah exactly so it's really it's really cool um check out the whole trilogy evil dead evil dead 2 and army of darkness so john and i mentioned under the shadow which premieres on netflix on january 6th as one of our favorite horror movies of 2016 another one so it originally premiered at sundance last year where it drew instant comparisons to the babadook and some people went as far as to call it the iranian babadook and John actually thinks it's better. I think it's equivalent. And uh, yeah, I, I'm we're a little, you know, divided on that front. I just think it's better because, like, I learned, I think, a little bit about um, Iran <laughs> or yeah, like the Iran-Iraq war. Like, it's as much a historical drama in a sense as it is a horror film. The film, which is directed by Babak not Baba Duke, but Babak Anvari follows a housewife who's left alone in Tehran after her husband is drafted into the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s. She begins to see and hear a mysterious apparition known as a jinn, which is a sort of mythological ghost-like creature um, in the apartment she shares with their young daughter. And then she thinks she's going crazy and she thinks her daughter's going crazy. But really, the jinn is sort of like a metaphor for the horror of war itself, because at that period in the Iraq-Iran war, there was just a constant sort of threat of bombs going off uh, anywhere at any time, sort of like Syria today. Um, So it's really, I, I mean, it was really terrifying in a way that uh is twofold and the fact that you know part of this horror is human made and part of it is spirit made and i thought that that was what made it better than the babadook emily so 
Well, the comparisons are obvious because that and that was a metaphor for grief. Yeah, true, true. Also coming to Netflix on January 7th is Miss Sharon Jones. Uh, it's Academy Award winning director Barbara Koppel's uh, documentary about the prolific singer who died recently. Um, Sharon Jones was the unstoppably energetic front woman for the funk and soul band, the Dap Kings. Um, and this this film chronicled her battle with pancreatic cancer and her subsequent return to the stage. It got rave reviews. She has a real triumphant return. And um, Barbara Koppel herself has such a strong reputation that um, I'm sure it's a great film. Coming out this week in theaters, A Monster Calls is getting its wide release this Friday on January 6th. If you haven't listened, a few weeks ago we released an interview podcast with the director J.A. Bayona, screenwriter Patrick Ness, and child actor Louis McDougall, in which we discussed this really beautiful, heartbreaking film. Um, the movie's about a boy who seeks the help of a tree monster to cope with his mom's terminal illness. It's, you know, it's not really a kid's movie, even though it's like being marketed as one. It's it's really um, kind of a brutal film as far as thematically. Really good film to go see as, as it gets its wide opening this week. Uh, and also be sure to check out that podcast I was talking about. It's titled A Monster Calls, How to Direct Young Actors to Brilliant Performances. Male Performance. Best male performance. Young act. How to direct Ew, young guys. actors to Seriously, brilliant male performances? Cancer. Okay. That you can do that podcast, Emily, by yourself, not interviewing anyone. Emily's <laughs> gonna do the video. Best male performance. Um, this kid was thirteen. <laughs> it's a really excellent podcast, I have to say, and we'll link to it in this week's podcast post. Uh, the best tweet I saw about this movie was that someone was glad to know that Groot had a side hustle. Also on January 6th, I, Daniel Blake, is coming to theaters. Yep, and this was the best film I saw at Cannes last year, by far. And I would now classify it as the film that actually defined the worldwide sociopolitical tensions that roiled in 2016. But interestingly, this film was made and premiered before either Brexit or the election of Donald Trump. Writer Paul Laverty and director Ken Loach have worked together for decades, investigating social issues with a humanist lens. And one of my favorites of theirs is The Wind That Shakes the Barley from 2006, about two brothers fighting a guerrilla war against British forces during the Irish War of Independence. Their films are deeply rooted in social realism. And as such, the writer-director duo's highest priority when working together and making films is character. And I, Daniel Blake, is no different. It's the story of the titular man, Dan, a hardworking, salt-of-the-earth guy. He's 56 years old, and he's forced to retire his carpentry career after a debilitating injury. So he's kind of in a rock, between a rock and a hard place. And he soon discovers that he can't make ends meet. When he turns to the British welfare system to get back on his feet and jumpstart a second career, he's given this crazy Kafka-esque runaround through a bureaucratic labyrinth that seems designed to churn him out onto the streets. The film is the story of his honest and eventually heartbreaking struggle to survive. I, Daniel Blake is entirely based on real experiences, which is rooted in its social realism. Um, Loach and writer Laverty spent weeks on the road visiting food banks and organizations for disabled persons and talking to people in the community. And in many cases, they cast these people to play themselves in the locations in which they worked, which is pretty cool. Well, as John mentioned earlier in the show, we are officially kicking off awards season. And the first big show is this Sunday night, the Golden Globes. Yes! So <laughs> I fucking love the Golden Globes. <laughs> I'm terrified. <laughs> Party at my house, baby. 
Ooh, nobody give that man a drink Sunday night. <laughs> oh, I'm so stoked. I want to give him some tea, maybe. Anyway, are you going to live tweet? What are you doing? You're live tweeting? I'm going to live tweet and live report the results um, with little interesting tidbits about the behind the scenes on the productions. So Emily will be tidbitting the Golden Globes on Sunday. So make sure to be at nofilmschool.com during the broadcast or even if you can't watch the broadcast. Nofilmschool.com is also where you can go to find this week's podcast post with all the links to all the opportunities and articles we mentioned, as well as... Lots more about the craft of filmmaking. So in the meantime, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, the No Film School podcast, and stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I am at E.L. Booter on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. I love the Golden Globes. I will be what? My eye, You can't take my eyes off that screen. I'll be sitting there for four hours. That's really who Jim Jim is. This crazy, unhinged man who cannot stop watching the Golden Globes. I'll be live tweeting the Golden Globes with my own thoughts. (laughs) I'm at Charles Hayne on Twitter. (laughs) Okay. Welcome to 2017. Happy New Year. See you next week.